This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. One cop car pulls in, and I remember him asking me where, and I pointed to the back door, and he goes, guns drawn. Ambulances, fire trucks are coming in, a helicopter comes in, and we still don't know what's happening. What concerns me about this killer is the ability to inflict those assaults on a woman and two precious girls and those two little boys and not speak a word about it. That's completely narcissistic and sociopathic. That's what concerns me. On the morning of August 1st, 2007, the phone rings inside the home of Jane Kyria, and it goes unanswered. The single mom of three hasn't been heard from in over 24 hours. Jane's sister-in-law, Pauline, is in a state of panic and desperately enlists the help of her niece, Diana. The two head over to Jane's house, and what they find is the aftermath of a vile and brutal slaughter, a scene that will haunt the family and homicide detectives for years to come. I'm Steve French, and this is Unsolved Mysteries, The Curia Family Murders. Powder Springs is a northwest suburb of Atlanta, Georgia. The population is about 16,000. The cul-de-sac where Jane Curia lives with her two daughters and young son is quiet and peaceful, with nice homes and well-kept lawns which makes what happened in this neighborhood in 2007 even more shocking and disturbing. When Pauline Tunde hasn't heard from her sister-in-law Jane in more than a day, she heads over to Jane's home with her niece, Diana Mina. My aunt Pauline, she knocks on the door at maybe around 9.45 in the morning and she tells me, hey, do you mind taking me over to your aunt's house, to Jane's house, because I've been trying to call them. My son is over there and... It's unlike them to not answer the phones or open the door ever since Monday. So I get into the car and I hadn't even brushed my teeth, honestly. I just got into the car and we drove over there. So she goes to open the front door. As she's walking toward the front, I make my way to the back. And as I walk up to the, the porch, I notice the sliding door is not entirely closed so I slide the door open and move the blinds and in that instance there was just nothing there's no noise there's no sound it's dark and the only thing that I saw was a cartoon on and that was the only light and so when I went to make my way into the house I noticed blood on the floor and there's a body and 
the blood is so much. It's all over the floor. It's up against the walls. And I instantly froze. And I told my aunt, you need to go back. Go back. And she asks, what's wrong? I tell her there's a body on the floor and there's blood all over. And she started screaming. Within minutes, Jane Curia's home is surrounded by police cars, ambulances, fire trucks, and a helicopter hovers above. The scene is crowded and chaotic. All of a sudden, I see a first responder stick out his hand and he puts five fingers up in the air. And then he puts out two. And then he puts out three. And I asked the officer, I'm like, what does that mean? And he told me, did you see an ambulance leave? And I said, yeah. And a chopper, and I said, yeah. That's two of the survivors. And I said, what about the three? What happened to the three? He said, they didn't make it. The three deceased victims are Jane Kiria, age 46, her 19-year-old daughter Isabella, and her 16-year-old daughter Annabelle. They have all been bludgeoned to death. Jane's son, 8-year-old Jeremy, and her nephew, 11-year-old PK, have somehow survived the brutal attack and now cling to life as they're rushed to the hospital. I can see my aunt. I mean, she's still crying hysterically. She's calling everybody she knows on the phone. And they never even took out the bodies until the whole entire family was moved from there. Because we left and went down to Powder Springs Police to get a briefing. And that's when they moved the bodies. It's unreal because on Sunday, I know that they were right next door at my cousin's house. At the police station, Jane's niece, Diana, who was just 22 at the time, tries to absorb the magnitude of the loss of this innocent and beautiful family. Jane, as a mom, she was awesome. She really wanted to do everything that she could to provide everything for her kids make sure they were in school on time, got their homeworks done, trying to keep up with good grades. She was strict, but she also had her times and she would put her hair down and have fun. Very outspoken, strong, hardworking, had really, really good work ethic. She worked at a nursing home right downtown in Powder Springs. And she made such good friends over the years with seniors, helping them just have better days and they helped her make better memories with herself and her kids and she really lived for that all of jane's hard work was reflected in her children who internalized her positive attitude and commitment to the community isabella had just started college annabelle was already an active member in her local church jeremy was a typical basketball loving kid who dreamed of moving back to kenya one day and their cousin pk had just arrived in the United States from Kenya two days earlier. They were all good kids. Nothing about their lives indicated that they had done anything to attract the violent attack. The questions that the police officers asked me were very general questions. You know, this is your aunt, yes. Did you know of anybody that they might have been dating or anybody who would want to do this to them? Do you know whether anybody was affiliated with any gangs? And no, we all had so many questions of even how somebody would even attack a child, let alone how they died. 
I remember getting this call at about 8.30 or 9 o'clock in the morning. I was in my office at my cubicle. I was told that I needed to respond to the scene and that my role would be to serve as the lead investigator on behalf of the Cobb County Police Department. I had been working death investigation, homicide investigation between the police department and the medical examiner's office for 16 years at the time. So I was kind of considered one of the older salty dogs, I guess. Detective John Dawes arrives at the Curia home and begins his assessment of the horrific crime scene. So I put on the booties and the gloves and, and I went in to take a look around. I could see that the scene in the kitchen where Jane Curia had been found dead was a horrific, blood-covered crime scene. And in that blood, there were many things that told me about what had occurred during the assault. There were smears, there were cast-offs, there were any number of bloodstained patterns that I can interpret, which told me that this was a blunt trauma and that it occurred in a way that Jane knew what was about to happen. She saw it coming and she began to fight for her life. And it was horrific. There was a lot more assault. There were a lot more strikes than would have been necessary to cause Jane Curia to die. When you see these types of assaults, you understand very quickly that the person just was inflamed. There was so much rage. They were angered beyond what they could handle emotionally, and they took it out on the body of another person. And then there was what appeared to be a teenage female who was deceased at the front door. Again, it was a blunt trauma that caused the injuries to the person that I later identified as Isabel Curia. And her body was uh, in a pool of blood in the hardwood landing in front of the front door. The difference in those two scenes was this. Jane saw it coming, and Jane was in a fight for her life and did everything that she could to defend herself, and I have no doubt protect her children. The scene for Isabel, she never saw it coming, which made sense with all the circumstances that we were later able to put together. Isabel came up the steps and got hit and continued to be hit until she died at the bottom of the steps. After I looked at Isabel's scene, then I went a short distance down the hallway to where Annabelle Curia was lying. There was a lot less blood evidence there. There was cast-offs that uh, were on the carpet and the wall. So I knew that this was similar trauma, blunt force, and it was to the head and her scene, Annabelle and Isabel's scenes were similar in that neither one knew what happened. They both walked into being hit. Just beyond Annabelle's body is a bedroom where police find Jane's son, Jeremy, and her nephew, PK, who both survived the attack. They were both assaulted in the bedroom. The sheets, the bedding, the mattresses were blood-soaked. And although the injuries were similar, blunt force trauma to the head, obviously with the same instrument, they were able to survive the injuries. And I think that's because their heads would have been on a pillow, which would have consumed some of the blows. 
I guess over the span of, I don't know, I was 50 years old at the time and, and had been around death for 20 years at that time and seen more than uh, most people can imagine. You don't get cold to it. You don't get used to it. Any scene where a kid is hurt is brutal to have to stand there and look at. Jeremy was airlifted and he was taken straight to um, the Children's Hospital in Atlanta. And he was in a really critical condition. PK was taken by ambulance. He was not as brutally attacked as Jeremy was, but they were really, really in bad shape, the both of them. So shortly after we left the Powder Springs police, we all went to Children's Hospital. We were obviously concerned that if word got out that PK and Jeremy survived their injuries, that this person who had clearly intended to cause their death, because he or she or they could be identified, would come take care of business. So from the moment those two boys arrived at the hospital, we had uniformed personnel And we had undercover people making sure nothing happened to those two boys. And that continued. That went on for days while they were there. In addition to protecting the boys, detectives also hope to obtain information or leads from anyone who comes to visit them. We made efforts to recover conversation from their rooms and pick up on anything that we could. We had people there and we were never able to identify anything being talked about about the particular crime. It was obviously just concern for both kids and the terrible, terrible crime that occurred and and how it would affect the family and so forth. With no idea why Jane and her children were targeted for such a violent assault, other family members worry that they too could be in danger. I was really uncomfortable just being in the house or even being anywhere without people. I would not get into the house by myself because I didn't feel safe. And so when no one was around, I'd opt to sleep in the car until somebody, either my neighbor or my brother, would come home. I'd rather sleep in the car where I can turn on my ignition and drive. I just didn't know, were we going to be next? After completing his initial walkthrough of the Curia home, Detective Dawes puts together a timeline of the crime. He estimates that the murders took place about 30 hours before Diana and her aunt discovered the bodies. Phone and data records reveal that Isabella answered an email just after midnight on July 31st. Then at 3.30 a.m., a phone call to Jane went unanswered. This places the time of the murders somewhere between midnight and 3 a.m. on July 31st. At that late hour, neighbors were sleeping and didn't hear the attack and no one saw the killer entering or leaving the Kyria home. Initially looking at the scene, we knew that the back door was not locked. No door, no window on the house showed any sign of any recent attempt to force entry. So you have to believe from those findings that this person was known to Jane and she opened the door when that person arrived. The table in the kitchen completely indicates that someone was there for at least a moment with Jane having a discussion. I have to assume that the weapon that was used was brought to the scene with knowledge that it was going to be used. We didn't find any weapon at the scene. 
or anything at the scene that would have been consistent with the injuries. The instrument we know from the autopsy was long, leaving marks 10 or 12 inches long on some injuries, so it had to be something of some length, and it had to be obviously something very porous, very uh, strong material, something like stainless steel or lead. And because of a significant injury to Jane under the chin, we know that that end, which was used to uh, inflict that injury, was pronged, like forked. And I know from experience in hundreds of other crimes I've worked, the person got injured. You can't do that assault and not sustain some type of injury that would have produced blood. However, dropped blood from the killer that is then mixed in with a greater quantity of Jane's own blood means that all we find is Jane's blood. Jane's blood would overwhelm a little bit of blood from the bad guy. The odd thing about what I saw that day is there wasn't a transfer from one scene to the next. And I literally see this because of that as four crime scenes. The blood from the kitchen didn't drip, shoe print, smear, or otherwise move to the crime scene that Isabel was contained within. And the crime scene that Isabel was contained in didn't move toward the scene where Annabelle was down the hallway. There's no continuation of blood from one to the next, and that is very odd. Detective Dawes conducts a thorough search of the house, looking for any other forensic evidence that might identify the killer. There were many, many items that came out of the house, and and we never came up with any print that couldn't be matched to the victims or just couldn't otherwise be identified. And there was zero blood leaving the house in any direction. We walked it. We searched it. We checked it. There's no blood in the driveway. There's no blood on the sidewalk. There's no blood in the grass. There's no blood coming off onto the deck. There's no blood. How and why that happened? I don't, did they take their shoes off? I wouldn't have think they would have thought about that, but it's possible. So we have no prints. We have no DNA except for our identified victims. I don't think that this killer is smart. I think that this killer is emotionally driven. What concerns me about this killer is the ability to inflict those assaults on a woman and two precious girls and those two little boys and not speak a word about it. That's completely narcissistic and sociopathic. That's what concerns me. Detective Dawes concludes his initial investigation of the crime scene without any clear leads but he suspects that Jane probably knew her killer and that she let him into the house voluntarily. That night, as devastated friends and family come together, Dawes continues to collect information about the victims and a motive for the murders. So that evening, I made myself available at a gathering of family and friends and probably 30 people. And so I was just there looking to see who was going to show up, just watching. But all of a sudden that evening... I was approached by this person who I had not seen earlier in the day. And this person said, just out of the blue, hey, um, I don't know if anybody's brought this up, but you need to look at the Mungiki tribe for these murders. I was told by that person that the Mungikis were 
a sect or tribe in Kenya who, for political motivations, were known for violent assaults and deaths in Kenya. This is the only person who ever brought up anything for me to look at. And this is on the night the crimes were discovered. They talked about their knowing Jane from church. They attended the same church in Marietta. And sometimes Annabelle would babysit his two young boys. And he would come over and do some work around the house for her, you know, because she was a single mom. And and he'd mow grass or fix something or whatever. And just kind of left it at that. But to bring up the Mangiki tribe at the moment just felt like I was being thrown in a direction. And this felt weird. This felt really, really strange. So I made the contacts I needed to make. I did the research I needed to do. The information I received back was that years ago, the Mangiki tribe was a very real, very violent, very nasty, politically motivated sect of people, but they wouldn't have ever just far-reaching come to the United States and killed somebody. There was nothing ever, even to this day, that would suggest any involvement by the Mangiki tribe. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, TEND is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. The investigation into the murders of Jane Curia and her children intensifies, but Detective John Dawes still has no viable leads or suspects. I had interviewed many friends. I had interviewed many family members. We had done canvassing in the neighborhood. There was a lot of work that had been accomplished, and through that, nobody could provide anything about any suspicious ongoings, about anything that had happened previously that that they were aware of where someone would be angered at Jane or Jane would be angry with them. There were no risks identified. There was just nothing. The detective's review of all the interviews and witnesses eventually takes him back to that suspicious encounter he had at the gathering of Jane's family on the evening after the murders. Dawes begins to investigate the man who warned him about the possible involvement of the Mungiki tribe. This suspect is from Kenya, had been in the United States a number of years. He's married. He had a situation where he worked during the day until at least early afternoon, and then he could go home. His wife was at home during the day, but at night she worked quite a distance away. And his whole family is known to Jane. 
They know one another from church. So he's a good fit. His alibi stunk. His alibi was that his wife was at work and he was at home. So being home alone with no other adult to represent that put him on shaky ground with me. Dawes brings the person of interest in to be interviewed on four separate occasions, slowly building trust and working to extract any potential clues. He obtains fingerprints, DNA, a hair sample, and takes photographs. He makes a visual assessment of the man, looking for any visible signs of injuries. But even though the man's relationship with Jane seems suspicious, there is no forensic evidence to connect him to the scene of the crime. When I was doing the court orders to get Jane's phone records early in the case, I didn't want just the day of the murder. I wanted some history. So I went back a month and I got all the phone calls starting on July 1 and going past the day the bodies were discovered for a couple of days. And there was this distinct pattern of 10 to 12 calls back and forth a day between these two. And then they suddenly stopped on July 31st. I'm talking about 300 calls. So when I talked to this guy about this, the number of times he had called Jane, the times she had called him, as many times he had been to the house, doing things for her, the answers were, I don't know. Well, why didn't you call her on July 31st? I don't know. Man, you called her 10 or 12 times a day, every day for 30 days. Why didn't you call her that day? I don't know. So they're all just crap answers. It's just when you don't have leverage on someone with some physical evidence, you've got an extremely uphill battle in an interview. The man insists to John that he and Jane were only friends. But Diana recalls witnessing an encounter between the two that indicated they might have been closer than that. I had once seen them in a liquor store kicking it up with Jane. They were headed to a party. He had left his car there and they were taking one car. So when I heard that he was the person who was making these many phone calls, that moment, that memory of me seeing them together in the liquor store stood out to me because I saw this was more than just a friendship relationship. It seemed odd to the whole family that this person and my Aunt Jane had this interaction of speaking so many times within the month. And this particular day when everybody is making an effort to reach Jane He never called her. Dawes gets a tip from family members who question whether the potential suspect may have had an inappropriate relationship with Jane's 16-year-old daughter, Annabelle. There were some times he would come over on, say, a Friday or whatever and take Annabelle to dinner as part of his payment for her babysitting the kids when she did. But just the two of them would go to dinner. There were family and friends who were skeptical, who took it a step beyond maybe he had something going with Jane and was mad that she was ending it or what other hypothetical situation you could come up with. And then they started thinking, oh, my God, he hit on Annabelle and she told her mom and Jane would definitely confront him about that and be angry. And he wouldn't want his wife to know that he had hit on Annabelle. But here again, it's something I can't verify. It's something I consider, but I I can't ask Annabelle and I can't ask Jane. I can ask him and he denied it. It's something that I wouldn't be surprised by, but it's something I can't verify. Detective Dawes also learns that the suspect approached Jane nearly a year before the murders, 
requesting to borrow a large sum of money, which she agreed to loan him. Jane loaned the money to this guy, who was then going to send it to Kenya, to his father, for the conversion of money and to purchase wheat. So I'm sure that she was wanting that money back. And from my study into the person Jane was, she would have been after it. She would have been demanding it back. So that goes to motive. You push somebody for a debt they owe and they can't pay it, that's motive. Diana also has questions about Jane's finances. She remembers an odd phone conversation between Jane and her own mother only days before the murders. She calls my mom and when she's having dinner and she tells my mom, oh, hey, you know, I haven't told you, but I spoke to your husband and I told him I'm expecting some money and I'll send it over as soon as I get it. And so my mom asks her like, oh, wow. okay, so how much money is it? And she's like, oh, it's $30,000. And because it's a single mom and she's working and has all these things going on, my mom curiously asked her like, hey, where are you getting this money from? And she said, oh, don't worry. It's just a business I'm getting into. And we left it at that. However, years after just sitting down and pondering, I came to find out that she had gone into business with her friends and they were about to sell a house or they were working on selling a house sometime that month before she passed away. But none of us knew that she was ever into any sort of business, especially real estate. So those are the few things that just stand out to me. And the fact that she never received the money, my dad never received the money, and we never found out where it was coming from. The connection between Jane's mysterious income and the large loan she gave to her Kenyan friend never materializes. Without physical or forensic evidence, John is unable to connect the man to the murders. Within a few weeks, Jeremy and his cousin PK recover enough so that Dawes can finally conduct a proper interview. He hopes the boys hold the key to identifying the perpetrator of the savage attack. Once Jeremy and PK were discharged from the hospital, I was able to to get some interviews in. You have to understand the severity of the trauma that they sustained, that they were unconscious for 24 hours, and that once they were at the hospital, they received treatment, including medications. So that all affects memory. Jeremy has very little recall of anything. PK's statement has been consistent all the way through. And his statement is seeing this man that he had never seen before, who spoke the Kenyan language, and that he was wearing a floral print shirt. PK's statement did not include any description of facial characteristics. For the average citizen to be the victim or witness a tragic, traumatic crime and then have the ability to identify somebody a day later, a week later, it just rarely happens. Neither Jeremy nor PK can positively identify the killer, leaving Detective Dawes with a pile of frustrating clues that just don't add up. The one piece of evidence that he hopes might break open the case is a blood-soaked towel that was found in a ditch nearly two miles away from the crime scene the day after the murders. This blood-stained hand towel contained a significant quantity of blood, 
and it was submitted to the Georgia Bureau of Investigation Crime Lab for analysis. And that DNA profile does not match Jane or Isabel or Annabelle or Jeremy Curia, and it does not match P.K. Tande. It's somebody else. And although it's two miles away, it wasn't there the day before, and it was there that morning. That's just too circumstantial for a common sense detective like I've always been. If we can do the genetic genealogy, extracting the DNA, building the profile, and then searching it in the database, we are likely to come across a relative. And then we can use the DNA profile to keep narrowing the scope of relatives until they arrive at who it is or who it is most likely. The blood on the towel is also compared to the DNA from Dawes's person of interest, Jane's mysterious friend from Kenya. But it's not a match. So if the DNA doesn't match the suspect or any of the victims, whose blood could it be? I've looked since day one at the possibility that I was dealing with more than one suspect, mainly because of the very distinct separation scene to scene within that house. It's just unexplainable for me in my experience to say one person did it without tracking everything through. It means that we may be looking at two rather than one, which makes the possibility of these assaults occurring so separately and maintaining separation a little bit easier to accomplish if you have two committing the crimes. Part of the reason this case stands cold today is because there's just too many what-ifs. There's too many roads to go down to. It's not narrowed enough to isolate to one particular factual thing. Detective Dawes holds out hope that one day a genetic analysis of the blood-soaked towel will lead to the perpetrator of the Curia family murders. But until then, all the evidence and clues he has collected have not been enough to warrant an arrest. I still hear from Diana. She knows that I retired a year ago. But I'm not going to tell her not to call me. It's a nightmare. You can't work homicide with any effectiveness at all unless you are willing to sacrifice your life for it. When these cases happen, you have to walk up to that scene knowing that you are a part of that and those victim family survivors are now your family. An obligation that you owe them is to get them an answer. So with this case, there are two little boys who are now 13 years older, but they're still little boys to me, who more than anything in this world deserve to know what happened to themselves and to their family so that they can begin to heal. Since the attacks, both Jeremy Curia and P.K. Tunde have tried to move on with their lives. They both returned to be with family in Kenya, where Jeremy recently finished high school, and P.K. is studying music at the University of Nairobi. For Diana, though, it's been difficult to move past that day. I still revisit that case every single day because nothing adds up. I think it was a business dealing gone wrong, honestly. But that amount of rage and anger is shocking because we do not know anyone around our circle of friends or even her circle of friends who would put out that much anger. So 
we're still so confused about whom it might be and how they'd have met them and how their deal went so wrong that he had to do this to her. And so it still completely shocks me. Everybody, all the cousins now, we have children. One thing we know about Annabelle is she loved children. She just loved them. And it hurts knowing that she will never see them or Isabella or even Jane. All the cousins grew up knowing each other, spending time together. Because that's how my aunts and my mom and them, they had done it. So we were used to always being so close. And we still are, but we're three people short. We miss just all of us being together, laughing and making silly jokes about everything. Because that's how we, we all grew up. We miss out on that. If you have any information about this case, please contact the Cobb County District Attorney's Office Cold Case Tip Line at 770-528-3032 or email coldcase at cobbcounty.org or go to unsolved.com. Next on Unsolved Mysteries. This was a very significant sighting because hundreds if not thousands of people in that area saw these craft that night. They all thought it was a UFO. They knew it was not any conventional aircraft, and they all described it in the same way. Some saw it more whitish, some saw it more yellowish, but again, three round, bright objects. From the moment I saw this object, I can only describe it as complete exhilaration. Unsolved Mysteries is a production of Cosgrove Mirror Productions and Cadence 13. It is executive produced by Terry Dunmuir and Chris Corcoran. Produced by Lloyd Lockridge, Christine Lennig, Courtney Ennis, and Paige Heimson. The story producer for this episode was Molly Ryan, and it was edited by Ryan Dan. From Cadence 13, editing, mixing, and mastering by Chris Basil, Andy Jaskowitz, and Bill Schultz. Production support by Sean Cherry and Ian Mont. Artwork and design is by Kurt Courtney. Publicity by Josephina Francis and Hilary Schuff. The original theme music was composed by Gary Malkin and Michael Boyd. Thanks for listening to Episode 8 of Unsolved Mysteries. You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University, Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. 
That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University Maryland's forensic science programs today.